Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, not bad, thank you. And Emily Benita, fresh from a trip to Denmark. Hi Emily, how are you? Hello Ed, it would have been much cooler if I could have said anything in Danish there, but (laughs) it is a notoriously beautiful and complicated language. So (laughs) I can say Tusentag, which is quite literally a thousand thanks ah. but beyond that i'm just about as good as adina when uh, sarah lund appears to her in a dream <laughs> and uh, she's definitely not speaking danish but no i'm back hey <laughs> yeah I, li- I liked that we were hey we're, we're making a big deal it's a fresh start there's three of us and then first of all emily's straight out of there yeah <laughs> lasted one episode the flake yeah, fruity and flaky as the best Danish are, as you pointed out, Matthew. No, I didn't want to. I didn't want to rain on your parade. You know, I'm I'm easing into this. And and obviously, like the the nice thing, as we said in the first episode of 3.0, as we've we've dubbed this era of the show, the, the nice thing about there being three of us is like one of us can take a break, and you know the others can kind of carry on in their set. Not me, obviously, because I do everything. But, <laughs> but if either of you two wants to take the week off, then we can we can continue on. Yeah, you do end up doing the, uh, it's not so much Charlie work as Ed work, but we'll get on to that, won't we? <laughs> oh, we'll be talking a lot about Charlie work later on. But <laughs> f- for the moment, let's leap into the news. It's quite a nice news week. There's nothing massively horrifying, which is always quite nice. So we'll start off with a uh, a particularly English story, I think, a very appropriate given the three of us, which is the new- news that Ardman Animation, the kind of quintessential animation studio stop motion animation studio based out of the uk announced this week that 75 percent of the company's holdings are going to be sold to or be bought by members of the staff of the studio the the two founders are kind of selling out a large part of their stock they'll still obviously own a quarter of it but they're giving it to the people who work for the company basically to safeguard the the studio's future by ensuring that you know it's not just going to be someone's not going to come along and offer them hundreds of millions of pounds to buy the thing from them. It will have to be agreed upon by all the people who have spent, in many cases, decades upon decades working in Ardman and making it the special studio that it is. And I just think this is such a, a heartening story in a media landscape which seems to constantly be filled with stories of companies being bought out and strip mined or. Um, submerged into larger corporate organisations. The the idea that Ardman, which has had this really distinctive identity for the entirety time, the entirety of its existence, is doing something to kind of safeguard itself is uh, is just so thoroughly lovely. Mm. I am so cynical <laughs> that like <laughs> I just got this feeling that Wallace and or Gromit are about to be embroiled in a Me Too type scandal. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is just to kind of throw us off the scent. But actually, mm. it's really, you know, become apparent that um, Ardman is now the birthplace of the socialist utopia where <laughs> the workers own the mean of, means of production. And, you know, it seems to be the greatest place ever. And this kind of wholesome studio that power all these kind of lovely, good-natured films, it stands to reason that 
they do lovely, good-natured things like this. I've met uh, mm. Nick Park. Uh, he's incredibly lovely. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of obviously got a fairly strong connection to Sheffield. Um, and I kind of ran into him, and he's a, a very nice man. And um, I'm not surprised in the slightest that he would do something like this. It is immensely lovely, and it manages to show how you don't have to be competitive and aggressive to be innovative or mm. to push forward in the industry because it's just Ardman doing its own thing and the way that I understand it best is by likening it to the John Lewis partnership like everyone who is the most invested in it is well literally literally and figuratively invested in it and Mm. I think that's lovely that returns will come back to the people who work so very hard to create these really beautiful films and different characters i mean the amount of work that goes into it is ridiculous to create this beautiful stop motion Mm. and i'm not one to feel patriotic often but Ardman does uh, particularly the shawl the sheep movie which i think is (laughs) yes an absolute delight for everyone and and the place that it's had in tv history as well like i still remember like the creature comfort adverts and Mm. um even peter gabriel's like sledgehammer video they do so much incredible stuff and I'm really excited to see how and where they will go next now that they have protected their independence in that way. Mm. I think it's it's really nice that they are paying back the people who have put in, you know, literally hours of painstaking work. And I wonder if their windfall and dividends will come like a penny at a time. <laughs> Just a little bit in tiny increments. Um, but yeah, I also um, really hope that the staff haven't secretly arranged a coup and they're just going to flog it to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Now they've been given the keys to the kingdom. But I, I, like, I, I see how hard I'm working to not make this a warming story. I'm so <laughs> English um, that even something that literally has nothing but positive, positivity about it, I'm, I'm shitting on it all over and I feel terrible. Well, here you go, Matt. I'm just going to swoop in with a little bit of uh, maybe naive optimism, but I just hope Rockstar are quaking in their boots now. <laughs> yeah yeah my my hope for the future of Ardman is that we're going to get a new round of creature comforts and it's all going to be it's all going to be turtles kind of sitting there and saying like oh i you know i met beryl and then we we grabbed our our placards and then we seized the means of production <laughs> see i wonder if they'll step in and start doing more adverts a la the recent iceland being banned for palm oil but as our plasticine mm. heroes go along they just melt into nothingness how's that for some cynicism risby yeah 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 <laughs> that really took the focus off me thanks Mm, bracing hey you're welcome i'm back this is what i'm here for baby (laughs) 3.0 our next story uh, is the story that uh, i've I've decidedly mixed feelings about which is the story that emma thompson is now a dame uh, and that she accepted her damehood is that what it's called (laughs) dame damedom yeah Damery, yeah. <laughs> uh, whilst wearing trainers, and on the one hand, I think that's uh, lovely that she wore trainers. That's a feels like a very Emma Thompsony thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, I'm like, people shouldn't be accepting <laughs> like knighthoods and damehoods. Mm. Uh, that's ridiculous, and people shouldn't do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at least she did it with some flair, I guess. Mm. I mean, what's his face? What's that guy we really rag on? I've forgotten his name. Eddie, Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> Mm-hmm. he's an obe <laughs> that's that's a scathing indictment of uh of the honor system right there kathy burke nothing and she would not accept it if they offered her i feel 
I think the thing is, is that the honours thing is kind of like, it's a nice idea, but as mm. soon as you bring the word empire into it, yeah. it just mm. makes you feel a bit queasy. And surely yeah. anyone with half a brain would feel the same. Surely, come on. Yeah, and I'm especially at this point, like, order the British Empire. It's like, oh, great, what does that mean? Like, I get 10% off at Sainsbury's or something. Like, it doesn't exactly mm. offer, like, a great sense of, of grandeur. Uh, and obviously the Empire was uh, a terribly evil thing. <laughs> did incomparable damage across the world. So it, even if it was still grand and consumed a third of the world, uh, probably wouldn't be a great idea to have that slapped onto the end of your name. Uh, you know, John Lennon was uh, did a lot of not very good things over the course of his life, but uh, I, I have always thought that he was right to refuse his uh, OBE or MBA, whichever one the Beatles all got given back mm-hmm. at the start of their career. Although I think technically you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to turn them down. Like you still get that like at the end of your name when they write your obituary and things like that because i don't know because uh monarchy is magic i guess <laughs> but, but uh yeah it's the thought that counts mm, yeah it, it's i don't know i think you feel funny about being inducted to any kind of order or chapter it's just like things are never good that are like it's like the clan and like the hell's angels it's mm. it's just yeah. not really clubs you want to be in it all gets yeah. very Masonic and exclusive. And I think the thing mm. is, is that, I mean, I, I adore Emma Thompson. I really do. I think she's wonderful. And very recently she came out in very active support of a film that won at the Scottish Baptist recently called Nay Pazaran, which is about a group of Rolls Royce workers in Scotland who uh, refused to work on weapons of war. Uh, I think there were bombs in particular that were going to be shipped off to Pinochet. And uh, hmm. this is a beautiful film that has been doing the rounds. I have not yet seen it, but everyone I know who has seen it, who is of the same leanings of I, have been weeping through screenings. So I really want to see it. And she came out on, on Twitter and said she saw the film and how beautiful it was and the power of direct action and community work. And then it's also like, yes, but you, you are a dame. And hmm. uh, you, uh, yes, you accepted um, in trainers, but they were box fresh, Emma. Like if they were <laughs> properly scuffed up, punked converse then i'm then i'm with it but they were box fresh and and whiter than white same as a lot of the people who are also in that room hey. <laughs> thank <Satire>. you satire <laughs> <laughs> and but i like you know oh i don't know it's 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 difficult but then we live in the era of problematic faves do we not and mm. um i more of her supporting direct action and smaller independent documentaries less of the being part of the order of the british empire because that all seems a little bit anyway i don't know i also think the whole like oh i'm gonna gonna ask prince william to kiss me emma you're married he's married (laughs) like your husband greg wise is going to be watching this you're literally you're literally mrs wise be wiser Our next story, and I think uh, the next couple of stories all kind of lead into our main topic of discussion for this week, was the news that Gus Van Zandt, the kind of like venerable uh, elder statesman of American independent cinema, it has signed on to direct a series for Amazon starring Will Ferrell and based on a article by Michael Chabon, which is going to be called The King of Fashion and is inspired by Chabon going to Paris Fashion Week with his 13-year-old son. And presumably they're going to expand on it a little bit because it doesn't feel like there's much there to make a story about. But uh, I'm I'm quite excited by that and I'm quite excited by this continued trend of 
people who maybe struggle to get the kind of movies they want made moving into streaming and the greater freedom there, whilst also kind of being tempered by the fact that the most recent run of Gus Van Zandt's movies have been largely terrible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it swings around about, isn't it? Like maybe with a bit more freedom, he'll do something better. You know, maybe this will end up being more, I don't know, drugstore cowboy and less sea of trees. Mm, I think someone like Gus, Gus Van Sant is he's a curious case actually like he's someone we definitely should have profiled like when, when mm. we did our uh the kind of the things where we picked uh, 10 artists and did something because he seems equally comfortable working in the studio system than he does like doing something like goodwill hunting for example which is you know a, a pretty kind of solid drama for a, a big studio uh it will mm. be a kind of a mini major then but then he also is certainly comfortable doing kind of slightly more esoteric fare but you feel like when he doesn't quite know which hat to wear, it kind of falls mm. somewhere, you know, and you, he's, he often makes very forgettable things. Um, yeah. And um, I just think that possibly with the freedom that someone like Amazon to give him, I think actually, I, I think it's actually a, a film rather than a, a series. Oh, okay. Um, but um, I think perhaps with uh, a little bit of freedom and he, Will Ferrell can be super engaging when he plays it straight. I think uh, that could be pretty interesting. And, you know, the the pedigree of uh, Michael Chabon, I'm always there for a bit of Chabon. Mm, yes, uh, writer of Spider-Man 2, Michael Chabon. That's not, that's not true, is it? Yeah, he wrote the screenplay. No, uh, he, he didn't. He totally did. Wow, okay, there we go, didn't know that. Unless I'm making up, I'm pretty Ed, are you sure it. this isn't your equivalent of how the alternative universe in which our assumptions are then proven wrong... <laughs> Nope, he did write it. He uh, he wrote the screen story, rather, so I, I guess he took a oh, meeting. Oh, now, said... now, now we're seeing holes in the story appear. <laughs> <laughs> and the other kind of bit of streaming news that is, is breaking news in that we just learnt about it, apparently the world <laughs> learnt about it yesterday. But, uh, yeah, so, so we've been screwed over by Twitter's algorithm yet again. Mm. Uh, was the news that Michelle Yeoh is going to be getting her own spin-off within the new Star Trek universe that started with uh, Star Trek Discovery last year and has kind of continued on with the recently announced and currently in production John Luke Picard spin-off series that is being worked on and I yeah literally, literally we just had this this conversation off mic but uh, my response to that is kind of twofold on the one hand it's like Christ like they're really mil- milking the Star Trek thing like already they've had one uh, revival that's done reasonably well and now they're going to throw all their eggs in one basket and another one and then on the other hand being like man Michelle Yeoh is pretty awesome <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing her be the lead of a TV series she is amazing it's it's about time it's just justice mm. you know the wheel turns it's, it turns slowly but it does turn and it's I kind of I, I find it a really mixed blessing bit of a curse because it seems that Studios and companies are, are only really able to see uh, these kinds of people as um, viable leads under the banner of a franchise. Like, I'd love mm. to have something original with Michelle Yeoh in it. You know, the fact that she's not white shouldn't stop her from having her own show that's around the world. She's an incredible actor and, and has been proven, you know, box office success for years. But fair enough, if we... if we need this kind of bridge then uh then okay i guess i mean i'm not a massive trekkie by any stretch of the imagination but i do really like her so i don't know maybe maybe i'll check it out but 
honestly, just more Michelle Yeoh in the world is not a bad thing. Mm. I, and I was very surprised at how they utilised her um, in the show. Because first of all, it was like, okay, she's anime, and there's going to be spoilers for Star Trek Discovery. Um, but like, she's kind of dispatched fairly quickly into the show. And I was like, oh, maybe it's kind of a cynical kind of like ploy to kind of maybe bring some more viewers to the show or appeal to to kind of like the far eastern market um and then all of a sudden she comes back and she's like having space threesomes and it's just like (laughs) she's this kind of like awful awful person in the show who will just kill anyone for fun um Mm. and um yeah i thought that was really cool use of uh of her kind of star wattage um mm. and uh you know i will watch anything that involves space threesomes okay I'm down with it. i i've literally just become a trekkie in that moment I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and in other kind of like tv news a story that broke this week that kind of seemed somewhat baffling to me because this felt like a story that had been not only completed, but has already been mined for an entirely different TV show. But it was announced that Breaking Bad will be coming back as a movie. This one focused on the character of Jesse Pinkman, following on from the events of the series finale. Now, details on the story apart from that are fairly thin on the ground, and it's not entirely clear if this is going to be a theatrical feature or some sort of TV movie, maybe some sort of backdoor pilot or something for another spin-off for Breaking Bad. But uh, I've, I've got very... Again, mixed feelings on this, because on the one hand, I really have a great deal of fondness for Breaking Bad. I thought I really enjoyed that show when it was on the air. I really like Better Call Saul. I kind of feel as if it's a world that has been explored enough already, and maybe it's time for the people involved to kind of move on to do other things. And and also, it's kind of makes me feel a little sad for Aaron Paul he is coming back to the character like so soon after the series end obviously he's gone on to do other work he's great as Todd on Bojack Horseman but like a lot of his other work like in film hasn't really taken off so there's it feels a little bittersweet that he would be coming back and also there's always the when when the show ended and it kind of ended on a a specific note for his character like it feels like continuing on the story would potentially ruin that note by mm. showing us what happened next unless what happens next is he drives to california goes to a house party <laughs> and then wakes up as the living housemate of a depressed horse mm. yeah if, if if we're just going to go into the uh, utter nightmare of a live action bojack horseman i could get on board <laughs> of that yeah i'll watch it <laughs> let's be honest i'll find time for it I'll squeeze in my response to this is from a, another Bob Odenkirk production, which is the third episode of season three of Mr. Show, where <laughs> Wally P. Doyle's widow, played by Karen Calgarith, just takes a drag on her cigarette and just says, oh, you men. <laughs> what a what a pull that's all that's all the enthusiasm i can muster for this i i, I think i've made it quite clear on this this hit platform um i'm no major fan of breaking bad or at least very critical of the hype that it has gathered um over the years mm. um i've not seen an awful lot of better calls all which is on me like i can't really comment um and it does seem a different beast from bb and i should give it a go but it 
again, it just seems very... There was an interesting thread on Twitter today from Dana Schwartz, who's a brilliant writer, and uh, she was talking mm. about her issue with the crimes of Grindelwald and the sort of uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them franchise versus Harry Potter franchise. And she was arguing, uh, we don't want to learn huge new worlds, actually, um, sort of stick within your lane franchise-wise. But I would say that Breaking Bad is 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 the is the exception to that to that rule um i agree i don't see what we will gain from this angle maybe it is an announcement that has come in very quickly to try and protect something before anything gets leaked but the fact that there's so little information attached with it makes it i think open to just everyone feeling a bit flumped about it really Mm, that's it we are flumped (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's just what you just have to wonder. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I had doubts about Better Call Saul and I ended up really liking that show. So having doubts about a Breaking Bad movie doesn't necessarily preclude it from ending up being really, really good or the story not having new material to cover. But you do have to wonder what the rest of that story for Jesse would be. Like, and it's, does and it's he a- be- Sorry, you go. Oh, I was going to say, and it's, sorry to interrupt, but it's a film. Mm. I mean, I don't see everything else has been episodic and I'm not aware of Gilligan's film output. I don't know who the writers are going to be on it. And I think the thing about a TV show, it's very hard to have too many cooks spoiling the broth. Like Breaking Bad had a really intricate, lean respectful writers room from what i understand and Mm. but but then a film if you have too many people writing a film then it's very hard to keep that cohesive tone and that's a lot for a director if a script feels very more like a mosaic so uh, i don't feel i mean I i probably feel exactly the same kind of weariness if it were announced as a tv show but also I mean, why why make a film at all? What are we going to gain from a ninety minute to you know two hour type film? I I don't flumped, flumped. flumped. <laughs> I think I think we've coined a new catchphrase for mm. you know how ambivalent do you feel about this? I'm pretty flumped. I'm pretty flumped. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's like rich tea biscuits. Mm, kind of flumped about them if I'm honest. Mm. Uh, and our final news story this week uh, is, you know, pretty seismic in terms of the streaming world. It was announced that Disney's forthcoming streaming service, which will offer exclusive access to all of their the properties that they own, will be called Disney Plus, and that they kind of talked a little bit about how that system is going to work and and how people will experience and be able to access all the stuff on there. And it was also announced at the same time that uh, ILM are really ramping up their TV work because uh, one of the stories that was announced was a spin-off series based around Cassian Andor. Is that the guy's name from Rogue One? Andor. Andor. Uh, Played in the in Rogue One by Diego Luna, uh, which is the uh, uh, one of a slew of spin-off series that have been announced in advance of this streaming service launch. In addition to that one, you know, there's uh, the live act. There's another live action Star Wars series. What's that one called? The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian, which is going to be about 
Is it going to be about Boba Fett or is it going to be just kind of a... It's about a Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen Return of the Jedi yet, but Boba Fett does fall down a hole and die. But um, in the books, <laughs> yeah, he does. He, cause, is, yeah. He, get, he gets out and is horribly scarred. I mean, I don't want to sound cynical about it, but they they had a Boba Fett movie in production for a long time, then they cancelled it and announced a TV show about a character that looks like Boba Fett. So maybe they'll be recycling some ideas from that. But uh, as far as as far as I know, it's uh, it's not Fett. Yes, and there's going to be some Marvel spin-off series as well. As well, I believe uh, Vision is getting his own series, uh, and. I think are they are they shunting Hawkeye after that because apparently no, he's not in the movies anymore. <laughs> it's Vision and Scarlet Witch together. That's right. Yes, and it is uh, Falcon and Bucky together. Yes, that's and, right. And uh, Loki on his own. Right. Okay. So all with the original actors returning, not like a Disney like straight to video spin off from the nineties where they get like sound alikes or look alikes. Mm. They are actually legit getting the people in because they're Disney and they own you now. This isn't going to be a Buzz Lightyear of Star Command situation where they yeah. just do an animated series about the cartoon series of Buzz Lightyear that exists within the Toy Story universe, which oh. opens up a metafictional, uh, a metafictional uh, quandary of quite dy- quite huge proportions. But yeah, it, it's it feels like uh, Disney and ILM are making some pretty huge moves in this this arena. Mm, it is interesting because they obviously made a play to to go for the streaming market because why wouldn't they it seems to be the future um but the way they're doing it appears to be the way that you wish everyone else had done it which is makes me think that they've kind of just held off for this long to kind of see what the pitfalls are and yeah i read today that they are mapping out their user interface much like their theme parks so when you enter it it's not just a big grid with content on roughly divided into genres or moods that you might be into it's actually set up so you can explore the different properties they own you can go to the pixar section of the the streaming site the animation disney the live action disney the star wars the marvel the national geographic and you you just go to what you want to experience and then kind of pick from there and they said that they're going to have approximately 700 hours of television uh, on there so that's new things they've got streaming plus old things that they own i wonder whether stuff like that they have on abc might go on there um Mm. the the kind of the family stuff they do on there might go on there um but 500 movies they have they own and made in their lifetime um so they really have a lot of stuff they can put on there and it's no surprise they're ramping up the uh, production especially with the the failure of solo making something like a television show feels a little less risky i guess especially if it's hosted on its own platform um and i have to say i'm very pleased about the cassian andor spin-off because um i really like diego luna and i heard an incredibly heartwarming story about uh like a second generation mexican american who took his dad, who was, you know, experienced Star Wars the first time around and loved it. And he went to see Rogue One with his dad and his dad burst into tears in the middle of the film. And he said, why? What's wrong? And he said, I've never seen a Latino actor on screen in a film like this that kept his accent. Mm. And I think that's a, a really big deal because, I mean, Diego Luna is a big part of why Rogue One's like super watchable and like yeah. fun especially if they bring Alan Tudyk back for, for his robot sidekick. And um, I think, you know, having a uh, Latino lead for a 
what's going to be a pretty major TV series. They're talking about The Mandalorian having a budget of around $400 million, which wow. is crazy for 10 episodes of television. I mean, that's the high end. I mean, I've seen a lot of estimates and that's the high end. Um, but to put that amount of money and faith in you know, a non-white actor with, mm. a, with an accent is just says a lot. And the reaction from like kind of the fan base, and I, I don't know if you've heard, but Star Wars fans are kind of arseholes. Um, <laughs> um, and it's been very positive, which is very pleasing. I think the funny thing is, is that I, even though I've been much more aware and following Star Wars, I don't feel as much of a rush for this Diego Luna spin-off as I did for Michelle Yeoh, as we were just discussing. I think maybe... <laughs> And and this is, you know, I'm I'm a completely imperfect hypocrite and I'm trying to learn to live with that. But to try to explain it a little bit, I think the thing that bothers me is that it's probably because I haven't seen Star Trek but, but that Michelle Yeoh features in, which I immediately will because uh, space threesomes. <laughs> Fleabag in space. So the thing is, is like, I have seen Rogue One and I really, really struggled with it. I think I think it was it was it was decent, it was ambitious, it was flawed. You're right, Matt. I think I think Diego Luna was a huge part of what made it watchable and dynamic and he brought so much to it. But again, I feel a little bit of all the people to give a spin-off to, a little bit similar with your 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 man Jesse Pinkman and uh, mm. his his spin-off film uh, wh- where are we going is this going to be another solo is this going to be a box ticking exercise where we look to give someone a decent vehicle but then what what if it is like solo and then what if mm-hmm. it just gives people more you know the exactly the wrong people the wrong ammunition against i don't know i'm just i've i I don't feel that excited about it, which is odd because how different is it from Michelle Yeoh getting her own spin-off? I don't know. Mm. I, I mean, um, Cassie and Andor in Rogue One, I didn't really get much of a feeling for his sexual proclivities. Mm. Um, so we don't, I think, and I think it'll be fairly kind of PG-13. But I think the thing that I liked about his character in Rogue One is you got the impression, and he actually does say it in a line of dialogue, that he's done kind of bad things in the name mm. of a good cause. And I mean, obviously, we're not going to see him like leading like a death squad, you know, executing people. But it'll be kind of fun to have a more kind of spy thrillery type show rather mm. than a kind of, ugh, okay, here's some references to a film you watched 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just hope that. Uh, and I, I think I think there's they did a, a limited run of a comic of of Cassian Andor. And I think that was pretty well received of, of the people who are into that stuff. So I think that there's, out of all the people they could have hung a show on, he's probably the one character that I thought would have been the best. Mm. Um, yeah. And I was, it was unexpected news, but it, it does kind of, it is them laying out a marker that, and I think that, you know, they probably have been working on this for a long time um, and kind of kept it quiet. And I think that's a decent draw. And I think Luna's star will rise because he's just, he's just taken over the lead of Narcos, hasn't he? Yes. Um, so I think his Luna be... will rise, Matt. Yeah, and oh, hang on, I, he has a threesome in that movie with Gail Garcia Bernal. Mama mm. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's it. To get your own streaming show, you have to have a threesome on film at one point. Makes sense to so me. Mine's, mine's uh, on its way, right? I, th- I think for me, you uh, kind of touched upon the thing that I'm 
that would make me both trepidatious and potentially very interested in it, which is I feel like most of the characters in Rogue One didn't feel like distinct people to me. They were all in some, to some extent, defined by just how charismatic the actors were Mm -hmm. and their choices. And so I, I, in in much the same sense that we didn't really get a sense for Cassian Andor's uh, sexual proclivities, I feel like we didn't get a huge sense of anything else about him. And on the one level, that makes me think, well, how much more ground is there to cover if you make a TV show about him if the movie didn't really give a sense of who he was? But that, at the same time, means that the writers have something of a blank slate. And Mm. if they want to kind of take the character in different directions, really the only thing that they are restricted by is that they know how his story ends but mm. everything leading up to that point they've got pretty much free reign to do whatever they want to do so hopefully uh disney you know gives them the freedom to explore that and so this all kind of leads us into our main topic this week which is ambition in television and you know this was kind of something we started talking about in the week particularly about the Cassian Andor series and and the Mandalorian, the fact that such huge amounts of money are being put into those sort of shows and how that also you can see manifesting in huge shows like Game of Thrones and shows having a kind of scale to them now on television that was unthinkable, you know, 20 years ago, 10 or even as little as 10 years ago. But it also got us thinking about things that in a less kind of purely budgetary and size sense you know like the fact that the sheer variety of television shows that have been made in the last you know particularly the last 10 years or so what what is generally seen as like the peak tv era have displayed a variety in levels of ambition and uh kind of approaches to visual storytelling that is quite expansive compared to the history of tv and that's not to say that you know television hasn't always been an experimental medium and that people haven't tried to push the form but you know in an era where there are so many tv shows being made it seems like there are a lot more opportunities for experimentation and we're really starting to see that in a lot of shows that are either new shows or shows that have been on the air for a while and are finding that they have room to kind of like try out new things it's a direct result of two things, money and talent being available to Mm. um, television. If you go back to the end of the seventies and you had people like, you know, Steven Spielberg and Jonathan Demme directing episodes of Columbo and shit like that. That's not the Mm. same. They were cutting their teeth on episodic television and it was a, a stepping stone to going somewhere else. Whereas now, People who have perhaps struggled to get stuff made or have been frustrated by the kind of slightly more rigid studio system are migrating into television. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we've talked about it ad nauseum in the last 10 years, that (laughs) it's a fairly seismic shift of talent and money from one thing to another. As cinema becomes more risk averse, we get Twin Peaks The Return on television. Mm. And which I haven't seen, I hear it's quite good. And now we're seeing Game of Thrones, which is what in season eight, is it? Yeah, that'll be the one that eight will be the one that airs next year. Okay, so I mean, from season one to season eight, we're talking a period of like nine years, maybe. Yeah. And in season one, the Night's Watch didn't ride horses because they couldn't afford them. (laughs) Yeah. And now we have a season that's going to cap off the story 
at six episodes, all of which are rumoured to be between 90 minutes and two hours, each costing upwards of $20 million. Hmm. That is a huge leap um, forward just for that show, but for what television means now. If ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, for those of you um, who don't know anything, and why are you listening to this? They're looking to us for the education, Matt. They are, yeah. yes. And it's um, the best source for it. Let it be known. What desperate individuals. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, Industrial Light and Magic, a special effects house who have been behind the special effects in of you know countless films, huge budget blockbusters, are launching their own TV division and will be dedicated solely to making the effects, which are going to be big, high-tech, CGI and practical effects for shows like The Mandalorian and also pretty much everything else I'd imagine that will now think, well, hang on, we can do something ambitious on television. It's not just, you know, we're not talking about Babylon 5 now. Mm. It would, you know, if you think about something, I mean, it wasn't very good, but Altered Carbon that came out on mm. Netflix, a visually ambitious show with lots mm. of ideas. And well, I mean, none of them are very good, but like, you know, it, it tried something and it didn't look like sci-fi on television, but even, even the good stuff like Star Trek, it looked cheap sometimes. And mm. it's some, some say that's part of the charm. And I kind of tend to agree. It lends a certain kitschiness to it, which is lovely. But now, you know, you could probably put episodes of these TV shows on a big cinema screen and people would be none the wiser, which is um, kind of like my roundabout way of saying that's where we're getting to now. Mm. Yeah. And I think, it, one of the other things we we kind of talked about in terms of television mimicking the language of movies in some to some extent is that you are seeing directors try and do kind of show stopping moments, particularly in the use of the long take, which is something that you know everyone talked about. True Detective, uh, you know mm. the first series that you know everyone talked about that was it like 12 minute sequence or something where it was all like a raid on a house that was all done in one continuous take, maybe a couple of continuous takes kind of, uh, soldered together in the, uh, in every two and Quaron style. But it was that that is something that has increasingly become a hallmark. I think of a lot of the television that is being made now is that it's trying to do things that people associate with, you know, or tourist cinema, you know, like when people think of long takes, they think of, you know, Wells in Touch of Evil or Goodfellas or whatever. And directors with kind of a, an eye for the cinematic have kind of been trying to appropriate it. And, and, you know, most notably in, you know, recent time in that it was a show that debuted less than a month ago, uh, an entire episode of, the haunting of hill house was shot in a series of long takes you know like uh each one lasting about 10 or 12 minutes which felt like uh you know the director mike flanagan really trying to bring that level of visual sophistication and ambition to television to streaming in particular mm. and it, it can be a little bit of a gimmick Mm-hmm. Um, but the good, the, the amazing thing about the Haunting of Hill House episode, um, and it's got, I've got to be very careful because I know that Emily hasn't seen it. Oh, no, um, I've seen kind it. Of have like spoilers or anything. Oh, also for the, for you ship munchers at home who haven't seen it, <laughs> um, is that the show takes place over two time periods with two casts playing, mm. playing the characters at different ages. And some of the shots 
traverse the time periods and the characters and mm. also deals with the fact that each of the characters is haunted by a particular ghost played by other characters from different time frames and mm. they're all done in camera a lot of mm. these there is some digital digital chicanery but it perfectly blends the two time periods together and two locations together using a dramatic device known as pathetic fallacy of a thunderstorm <laughs> and people contained within uh, one location by it and it does it remarkably well and i read an interview with mike flanagan and he said that netflix um when they said to us you know pitch the idea for the show why are we giving you like money to make the show out of a book that's already been adapted several times he said that right from the off they were like we want to be daring want to be bold and here's what we want to do in one episode and he basically gave you the pitch that i just gave you guys mm. and that's what they went for that's what they were attracted by they were attracted by the ambition of the idea which is kind of really comforting that you know people aren't just thinking well can you just make a scary show and stick it on the tv please it ticks the box that you know people click on the horror button when they're interested and now we can recommend something to them they actually wanted to produce content that felt new and bold and exciting I saw Joel Kim Booster, who is always worth a um, follow on Twitter uh, earlier today in all caps, said, the haunting of Hill House is August Osage County with ghosts <laughs> and you have to accept that. And it's interesting because, yes, I, I just uh, went in and watched this one long take episode. I haven't seen anything else around it. And it was interesting trying to gauge the characters because obviously I'm, I'm going in uh, with no prior build up. I'm, I'm just there for the technical stuff. But what came across to me so strongly is that it's not a gimmick in any way. Like, mm. this is one episode within a whole series. And this episode, it makes sense for them to do this technical thing because it it emphasizes that sense of these two timelines and the way that trauma works. It's not linear. Mm. It's not chronological. It is if you if you have a trigger of that trauma you're exactly where you were when you found the site of it and that was what I found really really drew me into this episode was that even though I had no basis of the rest of these characters I could understand that this was a formative point for all of them and as they're standing around in one timeline in the seemingly sort of like present day or contemporary all of them are informed by this experience that kind of bonded them all at that night and uh, Ed and I were saying off mic that there are shades of uh, Silent Hills PT, the playable trailer. Like there is this sense mm. that you are just being kind of guided around. And the thing that I find so compelling about this kind of long take is it feels simultaneously very realistic and very stylized and mm. completely relentless. You, you don't you don't have a chance necessarily to break away. I think there's one moment where there is a very severe there's there's your typical cut, basically. There's one point that this happens that I can remember in this episode, but there's still this sound bridge of of the younger character saying his brother's name that then comes into the older character saying his brother's name. So there's always this kind of like eternal and infernal kind of circular feeling to it, which yeah, it's eerie and, and good. And, you know, I might watch the rest of the series around it, off the, off the back of it. But it's nice because I think there's a difference between... There's, there's a big difference between a gimmick and something that you use 
really well as a tool and this didn't feel mm. gimmicky at all it felt like exactly the kind of story that you would tell in that way what i particularly like about it is that they use the long take approach only until a point at which it is no longer necessary yeah which mm. is that it's used you know for like they have these long stretches for the scenes that take place in the two timelines and then towards the end of the episode one character says something to another character and they basically say something that you know they couldn't they can't ever take this back the thing that they have said yeah is so profoundly terrible yeah. that it has dramatically reshaped their relationship and everyone's relationship to each other of all the people that are in that room and suddenly the editing and composition switches to a more traditional um you know television format you know there's shot reverse shots there's kind of cutting between different people's reactions and things like that and you realize that oh this was being done to create this sense of claustrophobia of these people being trapped in this one space with each other and to really heighten the sense of their dynamics clashing with each other and once that has reached its peak they very very smartly say okay that that this this thing has served its purpose uh, and i found that to be uh, to be very very gratifying because there are a lot of uh, shows that use the kind of like long take thing where they do it just because it's something that people do and you think wow you're just doing that to kind of show off that you can do it or yeah. in movies as well it's especially i think a problem in movies in something like atomic blonde which kind of has this big action sequence where Charlize theron is taking out all of these guys in an apartment building and it's clearly several takes stitched together but they're all fairly long takes and it's meant to look like a continuous thing and after a while you think this is just like showing off that you can do this it doesn't really benefit the story or you know um the revenant where which goes out of its way to try and make it seem like uh it's all done in a single take and then uh which uh i find really funny now because in the aftermath of the release of the new god of war which is also shot in exactly the same way and is meant to make you feel like you're watching a story that takes place in a continuous take it really does amplify that that video game quality that you also see in the some of the bits in haunting of hill house where uh henry thomas of et fame is uh you know kind of walking around this house after carla gugino and as he's rounding the corner she's like disappearing and and it really does feel like a survival horror game yeah and mm. it really uses that language of like the third person perspective in a way that is uh, really really cool and and honestly feels like a better video game adaptation than any video game adaptation that anyone's actually made mm. when we're talking about you know sometimes just doing it because it looks cool um netflix mm. themselves have been guilty of that in the daredevil um shows right um, yeah. but i feel like they've kind of exhausted just doing long corridor fights in in um kind of one take to now have gone round to becoming more inventive and having perfected how to do it on a technical level, mm. um, especially in this most recent season where there is a, a show-stopping escape from a prison that Matt Murdock has to do. But the joy of watching that is seeing how they, for me anyway, as someone who is interested in how these things are done, 
is, you know, watching just how many old school techniques they utilize mixed with, you know, technical trickery and, you know, some pretty advanced kind of CGI um, mm-hmm. and, you know, very clever editing next to throwing a stuntman over a table and then uh, Charlie Cox crawls out from on the other <laughs> side, but then only to be then to then transition with another stunt player a point that you cannot identify is incredible. And, and, and whilst it was fun for me to slightly detach myself and think, well, how did they do that? It was also a very thrilling fight that kind of anchored that whole season and provided a, you know, a good character turning moment for what was going on in that. So it wasn't completely a waste, but then it was also as is the want of action directors and, and kind of, uh, um, you know, people are into it to try and do a very elaborate thing it was still very much in keeping with the tone and the show and the characters. Mm. I'd have to say, like, I am, I've, I've watched so little Daredevil, like that whole element of um, MCU's just can like completely pass me by. But uh, I did watch this fight scene. It was impressive, but at the same time, I had this real uncanny valley feeling, even more so than like Haunting of Hill House and PT. Like, I, I did feel like I was watching someone play a video game really well mm. which mm. is which isn't necessarily a bad thing that was just what like it didn't take me out of stuff it didn't it didn't mar my experience but that was what it felt like more and mm. may, maybe that's interesting like in terms of particularly when you have action heavy tv maybe the ambition is less looking towards films and more towards games because there is something really exciting about that level of wanting to get involved. And I'm not mm. saying that we should necessarily go interactive. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But to feel that in it, to feel that sense of control. But also because, of course, the thing about games is that, yes, you, you, you have certain levels and, and bosses to defeat or whatever. But there's this sense of unwieldiness or choice or skill and I think that was the thing that I did enjoy about that Daredevil fight scene was that it did feel scrappy. It felt something else could ha- could just have happened there, but that was the mm. move that happened to have happened. And that's quite exciting. It, also, to kind of connect it to the haunting of Hill House, you also, when you're watching those long takes, and you know, there's a bit where the camera revolves around Timothy Hutton as he's talking to his kids and they're all adults and then it goes back to him and when it comes back they're kids and then it revolves back and they're adults again and there's, it's just nice to see something where you think okay what's happening here is that the actors are running on but when the camera is <laughs> away from them and they are running back and it's there's just something really nice and old school about something like that and, and the daredevil fight like there's a bit where uh, Charlie Cox has been thrown over a table and then he's kind of like crawling out and you can see that there's like blood uh, kind of drooling down out of his mouth you think okay uh, so what's happened there is a stuntman's been thrown over and while the stuntman was being thrown over they were applying makeup and Charlie Gox got into position and like there's uh, there is something nice and old school about that level of of trickery you know of of trying to do stuff in camera because in the olden days you know you didn't really have the tools available to do it any other way mm. And I think that just to pick up on Emily's point, which is something I've not thought of, that everyone talks, uh, you know, ad nauseum that no one's made a good film from a video game. And maybe this is the, the kind of natural conclusion of that as we're getting long sequences on television, which suit the aesthetic. 
Um, mm. And, you know, that seems to be like, and maybe that's the limitation of make, of adapting a video game. You adapt the idea and the aesthetic and you incorporate it into something else because no one's managed to adapt to the experience of playing a video game better than those action sequences. Mm. And to, to bring it back to uh, Gus Van Zandt, uh, I remember in Mark Cousins' The Story of Film and Odyssey, he talks to Gus Van Zandt in that, and Gus Van Zandt talks about how he developed the visual style for Jerry and Elephant, mm-hmm. and he talks about how his two primary interests uh, influences on it were the films of uh, Bellatar and Tomb Raider. <laughs> because he was playing he was playing a lot of Tomb Raider and you know the the way in which the camera always follows Lara Croft around as she is walking and running to places really influenced the kind of slow steady cam shots that comprise pretty much all of Jerry and uh, and Elephant so yeah it's kind of uh, Daredevil is a, I, I would say a little more visceral, visceral than mm-hmm. Elephant <laughs> but it's interesting that that element of video game aesthetics kind of it feels like it's creeping in more now, and maybe it's just because you're getting a generation of people who, for whom uh, playing video games was kind of a staple part of their diet, as opposed to it being kind of a thing that not everyone was into when people were making movies in the, the 90s and the, t- the early 2000s. I, I'm having a hard time picturing Gus Van Sant playing Tomb Raider. <laughs> I have to say... <laughs> I don't the, know why. The thing that I picture Gus Van Sant doing, seems we've mentioned him a couple of times... Um, this podcast already is um having a quite decent pop at himself in uh jay and silent bob strike back when a uh, good Will hunting <laughs> two hunting season is uh being shot and uh baffleck and matt damon uh turn to him like are you gonna shout action at any point shh boys he says as he counts his money <laughs> i'm busy <laughs> <laughs> which is how i will always always think of him but yeah i mean picturing how many directors can you picture playing video games mm. i did hear that john carpenter doesn't want to make a movie anymore because he's too busy playing xbox well yeah which, so aren't know, we all it's interesting i guess you just got your ps4 and the cowboy game haven't you matt so i think you can uh, uh, you can relate yeah, I can relate. And, uh, you know, my filmmaking days are long behind me. Um, and my career wasn't quite as illustrious as Mr. Carpenter's, um, although I did rip him off several times. Um, but, yeah, to, to, to kind of uh, bring it slightly back to what we were talking about, it's if we talk about money going to television, that's something that is demonstrably true. Um, mm. How true is it of talent? I mean, fairly true. Like, just this past week... Uh, yeah, we were talking about this off mic. Uh, we have a lot of off mic conversations. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, folks. You don't get to hit access to all of the great things we say. Just this slight window. But uh, we were talking about Homecoming, the mm. adaptation of the Gimlet Media podcast, and yes. how that sentence itself is insane. <laughs> like that there's a television adaptation of a podcast seems like something that would have been unthinkable, uh, you know, 10 years ago when it was just, I don't know, Ricky Gervais and Never Not Funny, uh, that that there would be a television adaptation. Obviously, there was a television adaptation of the Ricky Gervais podcast, which is uh, is strange to think about at this point. But, um, you know, the idea of of there being like a dramatic podcast that would then be turned into a TV series was so strange. But the the idea that it would be bankrolled by Amazon and that it would star Julia Roberts Mm. 
one of the biggest film stars in history and certainly in of contemporary times you know one of the most recognizable people in the world doing a streaming tv service service would have been unthinkable even two or three years ago that you would you would see something like that happen Mm. and that's just the latest in a long line of people who traditionally would have been thought of as film actors coming to tv and this year alone you know you've, you've got emma stone and jonah hill in maniac would kind of be uh, another recent example of two people who are pretty you know big stars in their own right and who have very successful careers doing a streaming show just because they liked the idea of it and they're attracted to the work being offered mm. I, I feel i do feel like i said it when it happened, but I feel like the watershed moment for this kind of stuff is Matthew McConaughey accepting his Oscar whilst True mm. Detective was screening. Yeah. Um, and that's just something that didn't happen like yeah. before it was, it was, it was a, a, a poor man's medium and everyone mm. knew it. And now it's at the point where, you know, you're starting to think oh, the movies in the cinema aren't quite as good. <laughs> as what came out on Netflix last week that I had to find to dig around in the trash and, and find it. <laughs> but yeah, like it's the, the more and more this happens, the less of an exception it will be for Julia Roberts to turn up on a streaming show and mm. more and yeah, more totally. the lines, you know, the last year, the film world was falling over themselves to try and convince themselves that Twin Peaks, the return uh, was a film that just yeah. happened to air in episodes on <laughs> yeah. a television network. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of almost feel like going forward, we are going to slip into the depressing uh, position where we just have content. Of, we'll, we'll have Oscars for short form and long form content. <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, the Oscar for episodic episodic content goes to Game of Thrones. And mm. yeah, that will be the case. It will just be a content um, competition of varying lengths. Mm. yeah depressing a show that i really wanted to talk about uh in kind of the context of ambition because it aired its season finale this week uh it's it's 13th season finale this week was it's always sunny in philadelphia which i think uh is illustrative just of how ambitious comedy in general is particularly american comedy where there's now so many opportunities and there are so many people who are kind of like coming up through various like stand-up and even podcast scenes, you know, like the LA alternative comedy scene over the last 10 years has really flourished. And you're seeing a lot of people kind of like come up through that and do really interesting, fascinating work. And I, th- I feel like what's kind of amazing about it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which has been on the air for 13 seasons it's got another season coming out next year, which will make it the, the longest-running live-action sitcom in American history, mm. <laughs> which is not something you would have thought back when, you know, they were hammering together the pilot from, uh, you know, just, like, vid- footage they kept reshooting themselves until they had it exactly right. And it has routinely kind of demonstrated itself to be a show really willing to take big bold risks and i think they're willing to do that because the show costs almost nothing to make so Mm -hmm. there's almost like oh we have no money so we have no limits you know we can do anything that we can stretch ourselves to do we will do and this manifested itself in the season finale which ends and kind of mild spoilers it ends with a dance routine that the character of mac does and usually when i say 
It's always sunny in Philadelphia ends with a dance routine. <laughs> Everyone's going to think about the Nightman cometh. <laughs> yes. Or the school reunion episode. Yes. Uh, everyone's going to think about that. And what it actually is, is this incredibly beautiful, earnest as hell ballet routine choreographed by a real life famous ballerina in which uh, Rob McElhaney, in the shape of his life, because mm. he is ripped as hell and he got ripped as hell purely for this dance sequence, uh, acts out this entire five minute ballet to a Sigur Ross song. And it is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on television. <laughs> and it is not something that you would expect given the show that it's always sunny in Philadelphia. And I think it points to the fact that it, it has been going so long and it has such a, like such a loose premise, you know, the premise is these five people are the worst people in the world and they live, they work in a bar <laughs> that they can do whatever the hell they like. And it's kind of, it's kind of stunning seeing them push that to a place that you absolutely would never have contemplated, you know, watching those early episodes or even watching the show kind of in the middle years of its run. I think the other thing, just to loop back ever so slightly, uh, I, can't, I honestly cannot wait to see that episode. <laughs> I need to. I'm, mm. I'm far behind on It's Always Sunny, and I, I do really want to come back to it. The, the beautiful thing uh, about It's Always Sunny is that, like you say, it has been consistently ambitious. And I think the thing that I find really uh, liberating about it is that in no way are these people meant to be aspirational. They're not meant to be people that mm. you want to be like. And they've just absolutely pushed everything in terms of not only content, but also form. And to loop back ever so slightly to your long takes, uh, we have Charlie work, which is a spectacular Mm -hmm. episode where we finally see a day in the life of Charlie from his perspective. And it was made sort of in a response to uh, Birdman. Mm. And that, that, that long one long take wonder. And it managed to show Charlie in a really noble light, which he is not often. And that was a really like fun, frenetic episode. And obviously, because it's on FX and it's a it's a short form thing, you you, you do still have a commercial break. Um, but I remember watching that and thinking, this is just some really solid, technically brilliant filmmaking. And we see Charlie mm. as the hero of his own. I mean, you could talk about the Goodfellas like kitchen sequence as well, right? Like going behind the scenes and and you know, just because you're working as part of it doesn't mean that you're less of it. And and it gave Charlie a little bit of dignity, which for the rest, the rest of the series, he does not have in the slightest. (laughs) Um, And I, I really Uh, loved that episode for that reason. I think part of how they've managed to retain the level of creative ambition that they have consistently hit Every single ep- every single series. There's no. There's maybe weaker episodes, but there's no weak series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, which is astonishing as a creative uh, endeavor, is because they're under no pressure to make the characters in any way likable. They can bring in whatever inconsistent behaviors they want, <laughs> because <laughs> ultimately, as long as they're being not nice, which is where something like you know, after a while, the characters in Friends. I mean, I hate them anyway, but they're not. They they do irritating things or they're unlikable because they run out of nice things to do. You will never run out of bad things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, have they never run out of bad things to do. And I feel like that's, you know, how they have kept it so fresh. But I mean, just staying going for 13 seasons and not 
doing it by rote and kind of not just phoning it in and not going through the motions because you're contractually obliged to is ambitious in itself to a kind of a dizzying degree. And I think one of the things as well that's quite nice is that the show has this kind of like tabula rasa quality to it in that it does have a history, but each episode kind of, it doesn't matter that you know their history and the characters themselves occasionally seem to forget what their history is. It's mm. just every week it's like they're starting as a completely new group of people who have these relationships and they can do whatever they want. And and for that reason, one of my favourite episodes of it ever was the one, I think from two or three seasons ago, where they just recycled a load of old plots from previous episodes. <laughs> and the cast, the characters all started getting weirded out because they were like, have we done this before? And it's clearly them kind of, uh, the, the, them as writers and producers kind of addressing their own, maybe their own worries about, you know, are we doing the same stuff over and over again? Are we at the risk of running stale? And it's a testament to the show that even when they are deliberately going, hey, we're just going to retell a bunch of stories that we've done before, it still feels like fresh and exciting. Mm. Uh, speaking of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, I just think it's, we should take a moment just to appreciate how, amazing Danny DeVito is just as a person as an actor uh as someone who has had a career that has seen him star in films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Taxi one of the great sitcoms of the 70s to produce Pulp Fiction and Out of Sight to have directed Matilda uh to have had this late career resurrection as uh, doing like a brilliantly disgusting and fearless performance as Frank Reynolds in in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and to have uh, tweeted the phrase Antonin Scalia retire bitch and <laughs> in the process giving us the phrase retire bitch as uh, just kind of a way of telling people to fuck off and mm. for that I just want to say Danny DeVito never retire bitch mm. please don't so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I am going to recommend um, a tabletop RPG, um, which... Uh, all right, come back, please. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's not too bad, honestly. It's a cooperative storytelling RPG based in the horror genre called Ten Candles, in which there is very minimal rules, but you play only by the light of 10 tea lights and slowly yeah. you extinguish them as you go through the story. And you know at the start that the character that you have created will die. And by the time the last one is snuffed out, the game is over. Okay. It is an incredible storytelling game where you, the only real competition between players and the, the, the DM, because there's a very loose set of rules, is who controls what happens if you fail or succeed. So you might want to do something and you fail a dice roll, so the GM gets to tell you what happens. You might want to do something and you succeed, and then you get to say what happens. So when you start the game, no one has any idea how it'll end. And it is incredible fun, and it's also super fucking like creepy. We played it on Halloween. Um, you genuinely just play it by the light and as your character only has like four characteristics and they're written on cards and you burn them as you start to lose all your hope and it's just a very very cleverly designed game by a, a designer called Stephen Dewey um, and it's like an indie game you can buy it online for like $8 it's 
um, like an incredibly inventive way of passing two hours if you want to creep yourselves out um, and also risk setting your house on fire. Um, <laughs> so yes, I would heartily recommend 10 Candles because you will have a great idea of how to recreate because you've got all these ideas from horror movies and, and kind of scary games in your head already and a lot of them kind of come out but through your own filter of what you think is interesting and cool collaborating with everyone else and it's it's probably a great game to play if you don't understand what tabletop role-playing games all about but you don't want to learn lots of rules and like go into a dungeon with a dragon um <laughs> it's a great place to start 10 candles by Stephen dewey that is my recommendation for the week cool emily what have you got to recommend I have to recommend, this is mainly for people who can access BBC. It is a comedy drama. I like to I like to think of it as a really pure sitcom, right? Because it's more sit than com, but there's plenty of com from the sit. It's called There She Goes. And mm. um, it is about um, a couple who are experiencing the trials and tribulations of raising their daughter who has uh, learning difficulties and they have an older son. The parents are played by Jessica Hines and David Tennant and I've never Mm. seen the two of them better and that is saying something because they've both been in quite a lot which is spectacular. It's written and created by Sean Pye who is a British comedy staple whose own daughter has... um, learning difficulties, disabilities, and the kind of inspiration for the show was um, him posting things about his life on Facebook and friends of his saying, this is brilliant, like, why can't you make a show about this? And he did, and there she goes, is the result of that. And it, it just manages to be an incredibly warm and confrontational um, in, in terms of being really wincingly honest about this experience and funnily enough goes between two timelines we kind of switch between Rosie who is their daughter when she's about nine but also looking at her just as she's being born and it's it's an absolute it's absolutely genius in terms of how it uses tone because nothing ever becomes too bleak or too funny or too light-hearted it just feels like actual life and I've never seen anything quite like it so there she goes is my my hearty recommendation fantastic i am going to recommend a series on youtube uh well two series really but the fourth and fifth series of Consylvania, the long running and for a time on hiatus video game slash comedy show based out of uh, glasgow starring and written by uh rob florence ryan mcleod and and jerry mcconnell which has come back the fourth series is now available on youtube the prior to this it was only available through their patreon account and the fifth is currently available on their patreon account and uh, i just really enjoyed catching up with the show again and and watching those guys years later you know i used to watch the show when it originally was being put out and you had to go on various internet forums to find the links to download episodes and it's really funny seeing how how good they still are at the comedy side of things at the weird video game related sketches that they do but also how their experiences have shaped how they view video games and their their reviews are always so uh, entertaining and thoughtful and honest and there's a particular review in the fifth series where uh rab talks about 
review about the reissue of the first two Shenmue games in advance of the release of Shenmue 3 next year which uh, touches upon various um, personal uh, tragedies in his life over the years, which is absolutely one of the most beautiful and gut-wrenching pieces of criticism uh, I have ever heard. And I think it it really does point to what a special and wonderful show Consulvania is. So, uh, yeah, so if people want to catch up on the fourth series, that's currently available on YouTube as well as uh, they've done a very good job of putting up clips of the original run of the show on there so you can pick and choose some of their their older reviews, which are always very, very funny. There's one where uh, Ryan plays a... It's like a dating simulator, but it turns out to be more of like a sexual harassment simulator because your character is just constantly harassing women and then getting frustrated and running out of their own house, which uh, is really funny because uh, as it goes along, Ryan clearly hates the game so much. Uh, and yeah, they've, they've, it's just great to have Consylvania back. And uh, if you want to watch the fourth series, it's all up on YouTube now. And if you want to throw them a couple of quid, you can watch the fifth series, which is about nine episodes in and they're all well worth checking out. Mm. Now I've got a PS4, I can actually start engaging with video game culture. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been a long time since my Sega Mega Drive games, get like days, so, and CBG magazine. <laughs> uh, before we go this week, Emily, uh, I cede the floor to you. All right, shameless plug time. I have I have two things to plug, one of which is my wonderful friend Douglas King's film Super November, which he made with his friend Josie Long, which is going on tour around the UK this month because it's November and it's going to be super. You can catch them in various different places. Uh, you can Google Super November Tour and I'm pretty sure all the dates will pop up. You will also hear yours truly in an audio cameo and also see me in uh, in a little visual cameo if, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing. And then uh, my other shameless plug is very much me and my inaugural comedy night with my comedy co-convener Rachel Ann Clark we will be at the old hairdressers on the 21st November for the first night of our grassroots idiosyncratic comedy showcase the salon see didn't sound like I'd rehearsed that at all uh but Mm. I, I had I had quite a lot we might wear suits don't know what else to say other than that really <laughs> so it's a solid choice it's the year of women in suits based on uh a simple favor and the new halloween oh we're, we're basically just trying to both be blake lively but more like a vince, <laughs> but more like a vincent adultman situation in a blake lively mm-hmm. suit we're just two women standing on top of each other trying to be blake lively i think that's how we all feel uh, okay, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and please uh, rate us and leave us a review and recommend us to your friends. Those are uh, the best ways to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you, next. <laughs> <laughs>